Bonjour, agus chia Welcome to The Irish in Canada, the podcast exploring the histories and legacies of Irish immigrants and their Canadian descendants. I'm your host, Jane McGaughy. This is episode number one, Captain Crozier. Today, we're going to go far, far away, up into the Arctic, to talk about an Irishman who has been at the heart of one of the great mysteries of the 19th century, the final fate of the crew of the Franklin Expedition. The Northwest Passage holds a special place in Canadian folk memory and legend, in no small part because of what happened to Franklin's crew, or what we think happened. The history of the Franklin Expedition is what I call an historical rabbit hole. Once you get interested in it, you keep falling deeper and deeper, like poor Alice on her way to Wonderland, and it can quickly become an obsession. And that's not a bad thing. I fall into my own rabbit hole all the time about T.E. Lawrence. Another friend of mine is completely besotted with antique rifles and ammunition. The Franklin Expedition gets people going, and I'm not going to pretend that I am any kind of an expert about all of its intricate details and machinations. I'm drawn to the tragedy of it all, And I'm always interested in Francis Crozier because, like Guy Carleton or James Fitzgibbon, he's an Irishman who is an important part of Canadian history, but who is often mistaken for being English. So that's my angle on the story today, but I completely encourage you to immerse yourself in the full history of the expedition itself and the new discoveries that are being made now that the ships have finally been found. We don't have a death date for Crozier, He disappeared as of April 26, 1848. He was one of the great polar explorers, and he is best remembered as the captain of the HMS Terror. He served as second-in-command to Sir John Franklin during their doomed attempt to find the Northwest Passage. The final physical connection we have to him is a message discovered in a frozen canister 11 years after his disappearance. It was the last contact the world ever had with Franklin's crew. But I'm getting ahead of myself, aren't I? Let's start a bit further back. Francis Rodden Moira Crozier was born on October 17, 1796, in Bambridge County Down. The 11th of 13 children, his father George named him after his friend, Francis Rodden Hastings, Earl of Moira. And uh, for my fellow Tolkien fans, yes, it's really hard not to say Moria, and make this suddenly all about Middle-earth. Young Francis was not quite two years old when the Battle of Ballinahinch took place 20 miles away from his home, ending the 1798 Irish Rising. He joined the Navy when he was 13, serving during the final years of the Napoleonic Wars. Ultimately, Crozier was involved in six expeditions to both the Arctic and Antarctica, becoming well-known for the scientific discoveries he made about the magnetic poles. Arguably, his greatest success came during his exploration of the South Pole with his best friend, Captain James Clark Ross, between 1839 and 1843. In an ironic twist of fate, they sailed on the same two ships that later took Crozier on his final voyage. Ross commanded the HMS Erebus, while Crozier was captain of the HMS Terror. Erebus and Terror were originally built as warships, constructed with extremely strong hulls meant to withstand the recoil of the heavy mortars they would fire. 
During peacetime, it was believed that these same specifications would help the ships to withstand the crushing pressures of the ice found at either pole. Together, Ross and Crozier surveyed huge areas of the southernmost continent, crossing the Antarctic Circle on January 1, 1841. Both men were feted as heroes when the ships returned to Britain. Ross was knighted, and Crozier was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society for his work on magnetism during the voyage. But Crozier had not come home a happy man. He was heartbroken. In 1840, before pressing on to Antarctica, the Erebus and Terror had stopped at Hobart in Van Diemen's Land, modern Tasmania. There, Crozier and Ross had spent time with the governor, Sir John Franklin, Franklin's wife, Jane, and his niece, Sophia Craycroft. Following their successful expedition, they returned to Hobart, and it was decided that a lavish fancy dress ball would be held on the decks of the Erebus and Terror. With 350 guests in attendance, the ball became the biggest in the history of the colony. The two ships were lashed together and covered in red bunting, flowers, mirrors, and chandeliers. Picture something like the biggest ballroom scene from Bridgerton, and then have even more men in full naval uniform. Sounds like my kind of party. Sir John, Lady Franklin, and Sophia were the guests of honor, and the men every woman wanted to dance with were the two captains, Ross and Crozier. By the end of the night, Francis was in love with Sophia, and Sophia was in love with his best friend. To give her credit, Ross was known as the handsomest man in the Navy, and if you look at his portraits, you can see why she was rather taken with him. The one from 1834 practically defines the word dashing. Before leaving Hobart, Crozier asked her to marry him. Sophia said no, and the Irishman sailed away, leaving his heart in Tasmania. Three years later, in 1844, the Franklins returned to England, and Crozier met Sophia again. Ross was now a happily married man, so perhaps Francis thought he might have a chance with the woman he had never been able to forget. But Sophia Craycroft was still not interested in the Irish captain. Distraught, Crozier decided to take a year's leave from the Navy and go to Italy, most likely to get over his heartbreak and maybe to enjoy some warm sunshine for a change. But then, word came that another attempt was being made to discover the Northwest Passage to the Pacific Ocean. As one of the polar explorers with the most experience, Francis thought he might be given command of the expedition. Of course, this became known as the Franklin Expedition, not the Crozier Expedition. Despite being 59 years old, overweight, and not having commanded a ship for 27 years, a tremendous lobby was made on Franklin's behalf with the Admiralty, and he was given command of the voyage, with Crozier as his second, and captain of the Terror. Adding insult to injury, the selection of other officers was given to Crozier's junior officer, Captain James Fitzjames, who was sailing on board the Erebus with Franklin. Many scholars of the expedition think that Crozier was intentionally overlooked by the Admiralty because he was from the lower classes, he was Presbyterian, and he was Irish. Franklin was a knight and a former colonial governor. Crozier was neither. Let us never forget, snobbery is timeless. 
Crozier, however, tried to be stoic. Writing to his sister Charlotte, he said that he was pleased, quote, from my old and kind friend Sir John Franklin. He also added that his family would know life on shore would not suit him. Just before leaving, Crozier faced another setback. He asked Sophia Craycroft to marry him for a second time, but again, she refused him. Disappointed and frustrated both personally and professionally, he put on a brave face and sailed away into the ice. We know a fair bit about the beginning of the expedition. There were 129 crew members in all, provisions to last for three years, a dog called Neptune, a cat, a monkey, an accordion, and nearly 1,000 gallons of lemon juice to fight off scurvy. After loading up in Greenland, the ships were last seen at Baffin Island in July 1845. They wintered at Beachy Island, where some crew members died and were buried. Their tombstones are still visible against the flat, arid landscape. But then, nothing. Total silence. The ships had disappeared, lost in the ice and snow. Fears back home started to increase. Something terrible must have happened. Two years after the men had sailed away, there was still no word to tell the Admiralty or Lady Franklin or Crozier's family what had happened. Desperate but determined, Lady Franklin organized one of the most impressive and long-lasting search-and-rescue campaigns in history. Thirty-five attempts were made to find the Erebus and Terror. Jane financed eleven of these herself. Sir James Clark Ross, the man who probably should have been the commander of the expedition if Crozier had to be passed over, left in January of 1848 to find his lost friend. He never did. The men were gone. Years passed. Then, in 1854, a Scottish explorer named John Ray was traveling along the northern shores of Hudson Bay when he met an Inuit man who had a naval gold cap band. When Ray asked where he got it, the man told him that it came from a place several days away to the west, where 35 or so Kablunat, non-Inuit white men, had starved to death. About a month later, he met with several Inuit families who had come to trade relics. They told Ray that four winters earlier, other Inuit had seen 40 or so Kablunat dragging a boat south. Their leader was a tall, stout man. Many scholars now agree that this likely was Francis Crozier. When the Inuit had returned the following spring, among the frozen tents, they found dozens of corpses, showing signs of cannibalism. It seemed as though everyone's worst fears had come true. The men were dead, and before the end, they had broken one of the strongest of Western taboos and resorted to eating human flesh in a desperate attempt to survive. But Lady Franklin and British society did not want to believe what John Ray told them, especially his descriptions of cannibalism. It turned the entire tragedy of the lost ships into something depraved and sordid. Lady Franklin was so enraged, she enlisted friends like Charles Dickens to write extremely racist diatribes against the Inuit to discredit the information that they had passed on to John Ray. And so, 
the rescue attempts continued. Five years later, in 1859, the Irishman Francis Leopold McClintock made an astounding discovery that added precious details to the mystery of what had happened to the ships and their crews. As a quick aside, be warned if you go online to read about this. Some websites refer to him as Francis Leopard McClintock, which, if true, would be one of the coolest names ever. But sadly, it's a typo. McClintock made his way to King William Island and discovered a cairn in the wilderness. Found among its rocks was a message from Francis Crozier. McClintock opened the rusting canister and found two messages. The page on which they had been recorded was a standard typescript message written in multiple languages to be sent to the Admiralty as proof of life, if found. It had been filled out by Lieutenant Gore in May 1847. He had added a few details, that the ships had wintered in the ice, but that Franklin was in command, and all was well. The second message, written in a cramped hand around the margins of the paper from Crozier and Fitzjames, told a different story. Quote, 25th April, 1848. Her Majesty's ships Terror and Erebus were deserted on the 22nd April, five leagues north-northwest of this, having been beset since 12th September, 1846. Sir John Franklin died on the 11th of June, 1847, and the total loss of deaths in the expedition has been to this date nine officers and 15 men. End quote. We don't know how Franklin died, but Crozier had been in command for just under a year. With the ships frozen in the ice for nearly two solid years, he had no choice but to lead the survivors on foot to Backsfish River, nearly 900 miles away. It was a death march. The white men that the Inuit had seen and told John Ray about likely were the final survivors of that original group. But the Inuit testimony was vilified for generations as being un-British. Now we know the truth. They were right. 105 men had wandered off into the icy tundra after abandoning the ships, and in some fashion had died terrible deaths. Over the years, there have been a number of theories that have tried to account for what might have gone wrong. When I was growing up in the 1980s, and extremely graphic photos of the mummified remains from Beachy Island were published, there was the strong belief that the crew had suffered from lead poisoning. All those canned provisions had been tainted from the beginning because of being sealed shut with lead. But another theory has been discussed more in the past few years, especially since the discovery of the sunken wrecks of the ships in 2014 and 2016. Ken McGugan has argued that the men, already beginning to starve and desperate for fresh food, might have eaten undercooked or raw polar bear meat and contracted trichinosis. The disease can make a person severely disoriented, ill, nauseous, and unable to walk or think straight. It also can kill a person within a matter of weeks. As more underwater expeditions are made to the wrecks, we hope to find out more. Apparently, the terror is so well-preserved below the icy water that it looks like, quote, 
a ship only recently deserted by its crew, seemingly forgotten by the passage of time. End quote. In 1862, Crozier's hometown of Bambridge County Down erected a statue in his honor. It is a very traditional monument in the Victorian style, with one Canadian detail that, if the trichinosis theory is true, is terribly ironic. Captain Crozier's effigy is supported by polar bears. Next time on The Irish in Canada, we're going to trek through blizzards, prospect for gold, and hang out with some real cowboys, all thanks to the larger-than-life adventures of Miss Nellie Cashman. Thanks for listening to The Irish in Canada. The show was researched, written, and narrated by me, Jane McGaughy. This season was edited and mixed by Patrick McMaster and produced by Marion Mulvenna. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kate Bevan Baker, and our logo was designed by Claire McCauley. Many thanks to the School of Irish Studies at Concordia University in Montreal, the Canadian Irish Studies Foundation, Le Gouvernement de Québec, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada for their support. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favourite podcast app. You can spread the word about the Irish in Canada by following us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at IrishCanadaPod. Our website is the irishincanadapodcast.ca. That's where you can find show notes for our episodes, including lists of sources and recommendations for further reading. Until next time, Gora Maogiv.